Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. Today, I'm in conversation with Abai Havaldar, an experienced board member and a successful venture capital investor who started his career in IT. He started his career with a role in testing software and went on to play other roles such as marketing, support, sales, and also product management for one of the very, very early packages that was developed in India. Always willing to experiment, he joined a venture capital firm, Draper International, as a partner. In this conversation, we talk about why he got into IT and the way in which he positions IT as solutions and how in his explanation, in using today's terminology, product management is more like software as a service. He also talks about starting out being a venture capitalist as a partner directly with the legendary Bill Draper and how he approaches investing and looking at the plan first than the market opportunity that is forecast. The importance of evaluating all risks and being humble is one more thing that he talks about. He also shares how he approaches theme-based investing and his approach to learning from others. And he also says that being wrong is a great time to learn. He also has been contributing to the social sector and he shares his experience and some of his perspectives. And finally, as a career tip, he talks about the importance of being comfortable with storytelling, particularly for entrepreneurs. Listen on. Hi, bye. Welcome to the Software People Stories. Hey, Chef Guru. Great to catch up. After decades, I think, not even years. So, Absolutely. And I was very thrilled when uh, your name came up and I said, why didn't I think of this before? Should have probably shouted you earlier. Like we always do, even though I have known you for a while, for the benefit of our listeners, if we can start with uh, your origin story and association with IT and your career trajectory. I know that you've done a lot of interesting things. We'll first hear from you and then take it from there. So I'll try and make it brief and then telescope out. But I was just told by somebody that we've been working for 40 years, which is quite scary. It kind of <laughs> uh, But and I used to say half and half between uh, tech and investing until I now realize that it is probably almost one fourth and three fourths. So, you know, 82 to 95 is when we spent a fair amount of time together. And uh, if I split even that part, that was kind of broadly tech. But what could be quite interesting is 82 to probably 86 was writing software and being part of testing teams, which, as you know, were considered to be lower caste at that particular point of time. You know, then basically got into what I think is my role in life, which is being an all-rounder, which is when the team is batting, I bowl well. And when the team is bowling, I bat well. As long as you can field well, you can carry this off. So 
you know, writing software and then going about doing marketing support and then sales is the three analogs to that. So spent most of my time after that doing product management and marketing support, which is the time I think we spent a fair amount of time together when we were in the early product days where we did right. an easy deal together at that particular point of time. Uh, post that, 94-95 came back and came to India and everybody wanted us to go out and keep selling software services. This is the other part which I thought was interesting. I was always willing to experiment. So somebody said, are you willing to join a venture capital firm? Did not know what it meant at that point of time. And this is actually Jacob Kurian, who both of us know. Must be they called him and he must have said, no, I am not interested. Very low for me or something of that variety. But I was quite happy to experiment and uh, kind of join Draper International at that point of time. Probably India's first true tech venture firm. Since then, have been investing uh, three phases to it. The first phase was early stage investing. The next phase was starting General Atlantic in India, which lasted for 13, 14 years. And then for the last three, four years, I'm kind of doing a boutique of my own along with a partner. So that's in short, what's been happening. Wonderful. Yes, it's definitely been years. And I know those days, I also remember our conversations on uh, what should we do beyond IT. So the urge to probably do something different. And I remember talking about going to Wharton and uh, or you know, doing, I wanted to be an international diplomat, a career diplomat and all that. But of course, IT was attractive enough for me to continue. So you were probably one of the people who had kind of left IT early and, as you said, into the VC industry. So we'll come to that. But uh, before that, uh, you know, why did you even get into IT? Tata Burroughs came to campus. I had one job at that point of time, which was the Indian Navy. If you remember, they used to come in the pre-final year. Mm -hmm. uh, Tata Burroughs came to campus and after a fairly rigorous set of tests, they had one question, which if you do regression analysis, was not there in anybody else, which was, do you have a passport? And that <laughs> was the answer to that is the reason why I joined Tata Burroughs. It's as simple as that, which was the travel bug. <laughs> okay. Yeah. In those days, that was a big thing. And uh, now when you took on a role of marketing and sales, where essentially I would like to look at it as an opportunity to help people understand the value of IT solutions. How did your perspective change or after knowing as a tester, you know, what can go wrong or what software can do, how were you presenting a case, I would assume a business case, for people to choose to embark on some IT solution? You know, that itself is an evolution and I don't think it is complete till now. I mean, for a long period of time, all of us thought that if we are doing a lot and if we are putting a lot of features, we need to go in there and shout as loud as we can about all the features that are there and then say, thou shall use it. How dare you not use it and things of that particular variety. I think it is even now that this comes to you and you have some aspect of that in almost every company that I am involved with. Until you ask the problem or until you try to focus on what is the problem that you're trying to solve, and you go ahead and ask the simple question, do you have this problem or not? And I think this is a number line from the fact that I and we do all of this to 
this is a problem that we have set out to solve do you have this problem or not are the two ends of that number line and almost everybody ends up coming somewhere in between and that is about how mature how many blows you have taken where you have found success all of that is your own profile and you end up somewhere in between but that's those are the two ends of it you also talked about the easy deal stint which is about yeah. product management when products themselves were not common in india and then product management was taking it one step further about not only the technical part of creating it but also positioning it and selling it and all that so how was that experience and then what was the mindset change that you had to go through if you can recall anything shivguru i'm going to give you a today's version of how i think about that okay, okay. so you are familiar with what is called as infrastructure as a service you are familiar with what is called as platform as a service and you are familiar with what is called as software as a service okay so for a moment think about all of us as infrastructure which is the manpower which used to exist out there think of tata burrows as the platform which is the platform as a service and think of what we did which is the project or the product as the software as a service and that is what was happening so in my mind during those days each of the individuals where you you know came together and put together in a project now if you remember earlier on we did not even the evolution is we did not even have control of the project so we were first just what i will call resourced which is the equivalent of provisioning at this particular point of time then we said you know we can actually run the whole project together so then we were given project manager responsibilities all of us thought we had kind of arrived in life which was the second piece and then we had kind of the whole solution which we started getting control of and then it was the managed service saying don't even bother we will keep on pushing things to you and then you deliver it to us so i see it no different than infrastructure as a service platform as a service which is what you know when you did training and when you got it together as a project that was what it was and software as a service which was the solution so i see it in that manner today during those days what we were doing was trying to sell the platform which was the company and trying to make sure that you have enough of listening skills which is i think what we were lacking as an organization during those days to listen to what people want and be the intermediary between that and our colleagues who could put it together now where do contracts or a contractual mode of working come into this so shivguru for a long period of time especially at that point of time the contract was something which financed it and yeah. then you came back and then your job was not complete because then the real work started because you know finance said something which was totally unacceptable to the customer and what the customer said finance had no acceptance and then the only thing that you had was a tool called beg which you begged on both sides to try and reduce the gap you did not have any understanding of it and then you started developing some sense of it which is you know if we price it in this manner that actually means that we are getting a better return than putting people up because we are carrying this risk that is the evolution of from sales to that being a manager which we went through in an accelerated manner in probably 2 years 
Yeah, and my question was more on when you mentioned listening skills and then ability to listen and respond. When you are working under a tight contract with pretty much everything being specified with the expectation that what is specified will get done, how much of listening is needed or how much of listening will really help? So I have a learning from those days, which is the contract is seen as a static model by most of us, which is once it is done, nothing changes. I think that is the fallacy, including your specs. See, the contract is a contract because the context is also in the contract. The context yeah. remains the same. So in a sense, your listening is about, have you put today's context and the expectation of the context in there, including the specs, etc. And are you listening to understand whether the context is changing or not? And are you adapting to it? And that is the tool that you have. And if you listen well, you can do a good job of making sure that everybody is happy or everybody is slightly unhappy, which is what you're trying to achieve. So the listening skills is related to not the specifics of the contract. The listening skill is related to this contract works under this context. And you are listening for whether the context is being changed or not. And that is what you focus on. Yeah. So how can a poor developer now who is happy doing the technical stuff be aware of these things and also establish that connect with the customers or the users? So I actually think that it has probably become easier because you know now if at all you look at it, there is low code, no code, etc. So the the impulse purchase, or it is almost the code is written instantaneously. It is no more the variety that you and me we started off, where you know from the time we started writing something to the time that code was used by anybody it could be two to three years, and you know it was a lot of things in between. So the kind of the developer was completely divorced from the the user at that particular point of time. So the situation is very different today. And then you add to this agile and stuff of that kind. So I think there is no developer in that sense today. So today's developer works in a scrum, is much closer to the user. And especially if at all you look at companies and look at what is called as product-led growth, he's got a lot more power in terms of influencing how the software is consumed than almost anyone. And it is bi-directional power. What I mean is as people consume, they kind of expose a lot of how they are going to consume and that digitally is fed back to the developer. So the, the connect between the developer and the consumer is far tighter and far more, very low cycle times at this particular point of time. Now, during those days, that was not there. And there were people like us who were called product managers who were the intermediaries in making sure that that happened. You also mentioned that uh, you we're into early stage investing. Yes. The first question is, when you moved from, say, hardcore being an insider in the tech, uh, software industry to somebody who's outside, who is going to assess whether a company or a project or any proposal is viable, what changed? Did you look at it any differently? So, you know, I had the benefit of working with some fairly uh, kind of senior people, but far more people who did it from first principles. So, 
you know, my introduction to venture capital was not as an analyst. So I didn't grow in venture capital. I joined the firm as a partner. And my partner was a gentleman called Bill Draper, who probably did it for 30, 25, 30 years before 1980. And his father was doing it and his son is, is doing it. So, I mean, you can't get people who understand that business any different. So I remember when we were joining and I didn't, I actually didn't know what venture capital was. He told me that I will ask you questions and you answer. So every time when there was a proposal which came or we were amongst the first who went out and met people, which is the outbound, like tell us what you are doing, which is the first thing which I learned. And in a sense, what we were looking at is not how they can fulfill or how smart they are at writing software and things of that kind. Do they know what they are setting out to do? How big is it? And do they understand the impact that they can make if we assume that what they want to do works? Those were the questions that we were trying to answer. And if they were doing all of this, are there any risks to it? For example, somebody getting bored, leaving, because we knew that there were many times when you will go through lows. And if you have a track record of people being motivated only by highs who can't deal with the lows, then that is a very difficult investment. So coming back, what mm. I'm saying, we were investing in people and we were investing in their intent and objective rather than in software at that particular point. Because you find that a lot of people have ideas. And at least in Bangalore, I have come across many who think that if I write an app, then I'm an entrepreneur. Or the next thing is, how do I get to be the unicorn the fastest time? What would be your guidance for them? I mean, the only thing I can say, which I learned was that you do not invest in the market opportunity, you invest in the plan. So after everybody has done all that, and you feel very good about the set of people, the team and the market opportunity, you can invest only in a plan because the plan defines the usage of capital and how somebody articulates the plan and defines the risks that he sees as a result of plan of which by using your capital, which risks he will reduce and as a result, which risks increase. If the person cannot articulate that, at least we did not think it was an investable plan. But we never said that you were investing in a company. You invest in a plan. You don't invest in people. You don't invest in the market opportunity. You invest in the plan. So the ability of that individual or that set, those set of people to have a plan and be honest about what they think that plan will achieve, the issues that it will create, the issues that it will solve, and being honest about it is probably what we were looking for. We were not looking for a 100% foolproof situation. So having said that, are there any anecdotes that you have where probably the proposal after you started reviewing either got changed or expanded or the entrepreneurs got a different insight into looking at their own business? So I'll say two or three things out here. People use financial and accounting numbers as the crutch for a plan, which is all very fine. But if you do, let's say, what is defined as a sensitivity analysis or a materiality 
analysis of any set of numbers, what you will realize that the things which are probably driving the materiality of that financial plan is more the assumptions rather than the calculations. And there is such a low focus on the assumptions that are being put into the spreadsheet and a discussion about the assumptions that you will be surprised that that is the reason why 90% of the plans are not funded. So people are in the minutia trying to define things which are material, materiality is 2 and 3%, and an assumption whose materiality could change the outcome by 50% is completely And so it is the assumptions. And why have you chosen those assumptions is probably the most crucial piece that I think does not get the kind of attention and the discussion from both sides, which to me is the most important criteria. The rest, you know, your plans will change. You can come up with a plan together. If at all, you have a sound foundation on which you're working. Yeah, I can totally relate to this. I remember still going back to the 80s. When for one of these product ideas, there was one you know, multi-plan those days before Excel was created. And we said, we'll put all the costs. And then the question was on how do we price this? Then he said, okay, maybe if we charge 15,000 rupees per copy, I think we will make it. Okay, but how many copies do you have to sell? Oh, 100 copies, 100 copies, that's all. Okay. Then he said, oh, no, no, we'll increase that, increase that. And finally, after a lot of these variables were changed, it looked like you just have to announce the product to make a profit. Yeah. So then somebody asked the question saying that, well, how will you even sell? Said, oh, we have to sell, right? So yeah, I, I can totally get it. The, just the numbers without the context is probably very misleading. And when you are investing in tech, when tech itself is evolving and every day there is either new jargon or there is probably call it a fad or saying that this is going to be the next big thing. How do you handle those kinds of risks? Particularly because I see more and more solutions today as playing in the ecosystem and not even as point solutions or the platforms. And you said product-led growth. Now, the product-led growth actually plays in the ecosystem. And the ecosystem, there are too many other players. So how do you first assess those kinds of risks? Or how do you help an entrepreneur identify some of these things and create some kind of say, resilience. So let's get back from what we said. Firstly, you know, let's assume we are beyond the assumptions. We're still on the plan at that particular point of time. Mm-hmm. And I updated to you that what we really want is an honest evaluation of the risk. Now, most people believe that if at all they define anything as a risk, they need to have a solution today to solve it. So either they will not identify it as a risk or they will try and do jugad out there. Mm. That's my view of an honest evaluation of risk. So even an ecosystem, there is an honest evaluation of risk. So in a sense, you're saying, why will somebody partner? How will they part? So this whole thing comes in whether you think that people have identified the risks appropriately or not. They don't have to be comprehensive 100%, but there are core risks and then there are other risks. So when you lay out all the risk, there's a lot which is signaled based on where they see the core and where they don't. And very often, when they define the core, the core is something which they have got a background in because that is why they define it as a core. 
and what is non-core is something which according to them is not very important. Now, what you're looking for is competencies, capabilities, and risk management. Very often, something is a risk because somebody's capabilities and competencies do not match well with the risk profile. And very often, what you're looking for is, are they aware? Can they go out and recruit people? Or can they recruit partners to try and manage the risk? And you are looking at whether that individual or that team in the past has managed to do that and how did they do it and what is the style that they do. You're not looking for whether they have solved it today. You are looking for whether they have the capabilities and competencies of doing it and whether they have an honest evaluation of risk. And is this part of their plan or not? So you're looking for that piece rather than it is a solved problem, which is where most people try to present things to you. But isn't it difficult to get people, particularly those with more of a technical bent of mind, to get this kind of an appreciation when they start? Wouldn't they be better off if they say they partnered with others and have a team that will look at this as a business venture. This is what it is, right? If he's solving a great algorithm and that requires only technology and then, you know, everybody will run to them, then they don't. <laughs> so my point is, it is about what you're trying to do and have an honest evaluation of all the risks and make sure that you are modest enough that either you say, I will learn it or I will partner or I will recruit. And recruitment is extremely difficult because you got to be humble. You know, technologists, for all we have, can be very humble people, but can have a huge ego on the technology that they have. Mm. So mine is better than everybody else's and hence somebody should work with me rather than I will make it easier, frictionless and all of that for somebody to work with me is an interesting piece. And if you think about all the technologists that you have worked with, tell me how that split will be on that. Yeah, definitely. The core technology is... I would say somewhat trivial. It's yes. more about the application and then how do you actually package it? So my point is you should be confident about your technology, but you should be humble about the adoption. Yeah, another question to understand an investor's mind. Now, one is in terms of scale. Do you expect your investees to scale? You know, there are many, many, many investors. So I will take a little bit of a segue and tell you what I have learned in my career. So when I was at Draper, we were running a strategy which is called as a power locker, which meant that each investment that we made, we have to have some probability, which is non-zero, of that investment which could return the whole fund. Mm -hmm. So what you're evaluating that for is a set of outcomes which are very varied. Now, if it all out of, and then you do portfolio risk, so you're saying, I need to invest in, let's say, between 10 and 15 companies or 8 and 12 companies to be able to achieve that. But you're investing in each as if each is a runway success. Okay. Whereas if you look at what we do, what I do today, I am looking at investing in companies whose outcomes are 0.8 to 5 times. That means that I am not looking for runway success. If it happens, it is because I did not plan for it to happen. Mm. So every fund, when they put a fund together, define the strategy. Typically, earlier stage funds, which is seed, 
Series A, etc. They typically have the power law curve strategy. The later funds typically are closer to the. Some are. I will want to protect my principal. I'll do one is to three. Then some of us are more. I will take some loss, but I need to have a high. So if you put each of the investors on a line curve, they are different from a risk reward basis. So the plan has to be aware and understanding of this. I don't think most people recognize that each one of us is trying to solve for a different outcome. The money that we have raised to manage, and which is our fiduciary responsibility, is to come up with the outcome that we have suggested we are trying to achieve, and that is why we construct our portfolio in a particular manner, and that is what we are trying to get. Now, when you ask me the question, typically this is a question which is there with the earlier, and then what happens is in periods of great liquidity, all these things are. Completely destroyed, and everybody tries to. So discipline from an investor's side goes awry when unusual things start happening. Capital markets, and then entrepreneurs obviously try to benefit from it. So our diligence process and what we are trying to achieve is very different. Now, come back to when we ask the entrepreneur to define risks and things of that kind. Very often, the risks that the entrepreneur's team does not cover. we ask ourselves the question can we actually mitigate some of those risks because otherwise he should raise money from anybody so there are times when you hear some somebody like me say that no this is not the right investment for me it might have nothing to do with the plan and the entrepreneurs it might just have to do with the kind of help that i can do or the complementarity that i bring from a risk management basis either he already has enough investors who supposedly are doing that mm-hmm. or he has it or they have thought through it or whatever else okay mm. so then if i come i'm coming for the ride and these guys will basically say why the hell are these people and i will essentially become a reviewer which is mm-hmm. where you ended up asking me the question how do you review my view is we typically see ourselves as company builders and we see ourselves as a repository of the experiences that we have been involved with in all the companies whose build we have been part of and because we are part of ecosystem and those experiences can we bring to bear on what the company is trying to solve today thus this then require a lot of bandwidth on your part or as the investor to be more closely associated with either day to day or maybe month to month operations and possibly influencing some of those decisions and actions i mean i hope all of us influence all the decisions and actions because that is why we say that we want a board position or an observer position that is because we seek to influence not because we seek to review so the review the outcome of the review if at all it is not some things which we think we can help people think through etc then those reviews are for a very different reason so my point is that is what is the hope and aspiration how well we do is actually defined by the entrepreneurs that we have worked with and people should do diligence because this is a open track record where you know what everybody has been involved with and you have an ability to call people and ask them whether they were helpful and how they were helpful and whether that is something which you know is important for you as you execute your plan or not i point is it 
is not fundraising it is mm-hmm. about can we get to the right fit one of the fits is do they have the capital or not whether mm-hmm. that is the primary fit or whether that is the secondary fit depends on how much leverage the entrepreneur has and how successful he is so an extension of the earlier question when you invest in a portfolio right it's not just one investment that you make yes how do you stay in sync with the context that we spoke about earlier and not get lost in either the numbers or probably something that is very very uh, temporary so i can tell you my way of doing it you know yes, different yes. are triggered by different things so i have been trained by people and especially general atlantic kind of did this very well was what is called as theme based investing so you have a theme in mind mm-hmm. and i go out and speak to many people whether they are uh, angels whether they are series a companies you know who are active and i have a discussion about the themes that are interesting to me mm. and i look at them to help kind of bring it together uh, which is hey if this is what is interesting to you you should speak to all these people so i do most of the times we are successful where we do not end up when somebody is raising capital but where the relationship is based across a conversation around themes and because people believe that we understand the themes and we have experienced the theme and we have something to contribute in that particular area when the capital is being raised we might have an additional advantage at that particular point of time but i am a strong believer in theme based investing and that is what i participate and that is what gives me the context rather than the financial numbers when i invest so how do you also keep yourself updated on the theme beyond the company like who are supposed to educate me about all these things you did a good job for the first 10 to 12 years when i was marketing what you guys developed you just have to continue to do that i mean i hang out with people such as you i have conversations with many of the people and say hey what do you think about this and you know you have enough stuff going on so if at all you've been doing this for 30 40 years you know all the entrepreneurs educate you because you are engaged with them all your friends and colleagues who've been part of the industry educate you you read like everybody else and your colleagues and teammates when they are doing diligence come up with questions and say hey this is how i observe the investing business is great because you learn a hell of a lot and you don't have to do it all by yourself and that is not the heavy lifting that you do there are many insights which come from the context and the environment that you decide and you choose to participate in so what would be some tips for the techies to start networking or to strengthen their networks i actually i mean i'm just extending what i said about team which is mm-hmm. think of abstractions try to join the dots about what you think is successful what is not be willing to sp- speak about it because most of the times you will be wrong but when you're wrong is the best time to learn and somebody will point it out to you don't back off you know being wrong is not only fine but it is a great time to learn and over a period of time you know you'll get to the right place and at any point of time focus i mean you can't have too many themes so you know choose whatever whatever diversification gives you comfort if it depending on how strongly you feel about it so talking of themes i know that you've also been associated 
with uh, some activities in the social sector. How did that come about? So there are two things which happened. Uh, in between, I did as an entrepreneur along with a colleague of mine. Ram Firstly, at Draper, Bill Draper, beyond being venture capitalist, is one of the larger... So he uses the venture model to fund NGOs. And so yeah. I was exposed to that piece. Then when I started a firm called Connect Capital with Raman and Raghavindan, we actually raised money to do social investing. And many of today's big firms actually got their first external capital from that, it, you know, from that fund. And many of the NGOs actually don't know that. It would be interesting and you know, there's enough written about it. But what we actually invested in was capability building and competence building, which nobody was investing in at that point of time. So unless you had a project, nobody was funding NGOs. And that is what we did at that particular point of time with our small measure. When I came to General Atlantic, I don't know whether you're familiar with it. There is one gentleman called Chuck Feeney whose money was the money that was the sole money that we were managing. And there was a race between whether we can give him better returns than what he could deploy in the social sector. So he's the man who has given away all his money and it is $8 billion. And if you want, you can read the book. It was called The Billionaire Who Wasn't. So mm. the social sector has been a part of the last 30 years, which was complementary to what we were doing on a regular basis. So... IDR, for example, is a friend who I had invested in Connect Capital who decided to do that. And she was well aware of this history. And hence, I thought that was something which was important because I think the challenge in the not-for-profit sector is that purpose is overpriced as compared to scale and scalability. So if somebody has purpose, everything else is secondary and ignored. That is the only thing people focus upon. Efficiency, scale and impact are, there is no balance scorecard. And because of that, it is very difficult to have NGOs where you have had succession and where you have had growth because the founder and the purpose are so tightly put together that I think they suffer on that count. So it is a little bit like why the SME industry in India or why we have very many small companies, the same purpose. We haven't had efficiency of NGOs. For the same purpose, you'll have 55 NGOs and the five next ones would still want to do that. So for example, education or something of that kind. Mm -hmm. And uh, people would not join somebody and help them succeed. They would want to start their own stuff. And mm -hmm. I find that as a challenge and trying to solve that through the way IDR does this was the motivation to be involved in that. I didn't realize how long we've been talking. And uh, I have one question that I ask all my guests, but I'll ask that a little differently in your case, where uh, it's about careers and tips related to that. Now, for, say, those who are entering the tech industry, what would be your guidance to create something of value, whether it is they doing it themselves or through a startup or some you know, social impact kind of solutions. And possibly it may be a little early for them or people who've been in IT for a while, if they want to switch to investment as a career, what would be your tips for them? I mean, I spoke to you about listening skills. I spoke to you about the problem that you're trying to solve. 
and i will add one more skill and competence which i would want people to focus on which is storytelling nobody wants to hear and find another spreadsheet you need if you are an entrepreneur or if you want to create value that is created by having the ability to recognize patterns and roll it forward and do that in a storytelling manner with episodes and things of that variety most people forget the art of storytelling with evidence based issues connected to it technology by itself is not interesting enough if the technology is embedded in a story and if that story can be personalized to your experiences or to your personality i think you will have a blockbuster right. thanks so what about people who may want to consider a career in investing what i'm saying is you don't know you are an investor in your own career any which way so don't believe that you are not an investor it is about what you are investing which could change and so to my mind you don't have a choice you are an investor that's kind of reassuring i thought <laughs> i was always very bad with money <laughs> but i mean shivguru you look at it how much money came in because you invested money versus because you used your skills and competence yes. and you lacked your answer essentially on that note uh, thanks abai for the wonderful conversation uh, we will catch up soon on some of the other topics that we spoke about you know, before we got into this recording that's great thanks look forward stay in touch We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the software people stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcast@pm-powerconsulting.com.